Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, world NATO leaders meet in London to discuss unity. It's been a year since the Huawei CFO was arrested in British Columbia, and she's thanking Canadians for their warm reception. What about the two Michaels detained in China? And another interview on Prince Andrew's sexual escapades. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, uh, NATO Summit is this week in London tomorrow and the next day, December 3rd and 4th. Uh, world leaders uh, will meet to discuss uh, what is happening on the planet and how we move forward, hopefully with a bit more unity. To talk more about all of this, Aurel Braun is with us, Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, Mississauga, Professor at Monk School of Global Affairs, and is on the line with us now. Aurel, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Uh, obviously, NATO countries are meeting together uh, tomorrow and the next day. What is on the agenda? What will be the priority for these discussions? Steve, we want to talk about a Russia that has become more and more assertive. There are issues in Afghanistan. There are with countries uh, uh, being asked to get up to the 2% of defense spending, GDP uh, uh, spending on defense that uh, they committed to in terms of guidelines back at the Wales uh, NATO summit. So I think there are external matters. Talk a little bit about the United States role here and Donald Trump and, and how important it is or how he could put these meetings off their axis uh, by not presenting that unified front. He is the president of uh, the superpower within that alliance. United States carries the largest burden within NATO, and what United States does is profoundly important. Mr. Trump has uh, chosen a rather confrontational approach, but what he is voicing is a long-term grievance that the United States has had, and that is that other countries do not, especially the wealthy European countries like Germany, and Italy do not carry a fair burden. There was an agreement to set guidelines that by 2024, all NATO states were supposed to spend some like 2% of their GDP. And Germany and Italy, for example, are nowhere nearly close to that. And so there is friction. But at the same time, we also have to recognize that NATO is both a military and political alliance that has been spectacularly successful. There's no other alliance in history that has the same longevity. So NATO has very good, very strong DNA. So even when there are disagreements, somehow NATO survives. Uh, there seems that whenever the there are uh, NATO, uh, NATO meetings, G7, uh, G8, or sorry, G7 meetings, G20 meetings, and such, that somehow the agenda has been derailed by something that the the, the president has uh, done or said. What are you hoping comes out of these meetings? Obviously, the ideal outcome would be uh, more harmony. That there would be movement on all sides that uh, uh, Mr. Trump would reiterate more strongly uh, than usual the American commitment to defense of NATO and that European countries in particular would indicate that they are accelerating expenditures because, after all, uh, the Europeans uh, are more at risk from Russia than the United States. Uh, so that would be a positive development. Maybe they will choose to paper over differences. But, you know, we should not be overly alarmed by some uh, differences. Uh, and, you know, uh, the previous meetings have not led to the disintegration of NATO. Uh, in fact, the Europeans have begun to increase their defense expenditures. There has been some positive movement, something like 15 countries out of uh, the alliance. About half are going to meet uh, this year uh, the 2% mark. So there are a variety of encouraging signs. I think disunity is good for Russia, uh, whereas a NATO that is more cohesive 
sends a clearer message, a more effective message, and uh, so this is what uh, we should uh, we should hope for. I think there are some particular issues relating to Canada because we are uh, not only in alliance uh, with the United States via NATO, we are also in NORAD, and we have a particular interest in the Arctic, and we have issues with Russia in the Arctic. So uh, we have a lot at stake. Uh, what will what will relations be like between Putin and Trump? How does Russia view this? Russia would like to see NATO as divided and as weakened as possible. And so clearly the policy of the Putin administration is to try to undermine the cohesion of the alliance, to play one uh, member of the alliance against another, they have managed to wield some significant influence with countries like uh, Hungary, uh, which kind of broke ranks among these European states. Who, uh, these states overall are very concerned about Russian threats, uh, especially in places like Ukraine and in the Baltic states. Um, the Russians have also uh, pushed for the building of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, carrying natural gas to try to increase German dependence on uh, Russian gas. But overall, I don't think uh, the Kremlin is very happy with trend lines. The energy situation does not favor Russia. The United States has become an energy exporter. Uh, oil and gas prices are not moving up. That is very damaging to the unilateral Russian economy. The United States has dramatically increased its military spending. And now NATO is increasing in spending overall, and uh, uh, many countries now, uh, as I know, that are meeting the 2% mark. So if I was sitting in the Kremlin, uh, the picture does not look uh, nearly as rosy as some people imagine. How, how much will the Ukraine issue and Trump's involvement, specifically what he's going on, going through domestically with uh, his allegations and in, in, in the allegations in regard to the Ukraine president and in holding up military aid, uh, obviously to defend against Russia. How will all of that issue play at these uh, at these at this conference? Or is this looked at as a domestic issue for Trump? I think it's more of a domestic factor. The uh, aid has been restored, and uh, the rhetoric that uh, Mr. Trump has used uh, often gives the impression that uh, Russia is being favored and that Mr. Putin is admired and he is being successful. But the reality on the ground is that the Obama administration, for example, which had this exalted rhetoric about Ukraine, this uh, all-out commitment for the sovereignty of Ukraine, refused to sell any uh, lethal defensive armaments to Ukraine. Mr. Trump has been willing to do that. And so what uh, uh, is the reality is that there is a very significant difference between the rhetoric that comes out from the Trump administration and the actual policy, which has been considerably more supportive of Ukraine than the previous administration, and I think that is likely to continue, and Russia cannot be happy about that. In fact, uh, the Russians have been more successful with people like Angela Merkel, who has been uh, completely opposed to sending any kind of armaments to Ukraine. Uh, the Trump administration uh, proclaims its uh, admiration of Mr. Putin, but it's selling uh, uh, defensive armaments, including uh, javelin uh, Mm. anti-tank missiles to, to Kiev. So, again, looking at it from the uh, Kremlin's perspective, they might say, we really appreciate the favorable rhetoric, but the policies are very bad for us. So how does Donald Trump square that circle? Because at many times during these sort of events, uh, it appears that Donald Trump is cozying up, cozying up more to our enemies than allies. What will, what, what will we see this time out? Again, uh, with Mr. Trump, there's a huge problem because he is so bombastic, he is so vulgar at times, he is so needlessly confrontational that uh, we are mesmerized by what he says 
and uh, uh, many of us will react with displeasure or, or anger. And so it's difficult to transcend that and to look at real policy. And real policy actually has been to uh, strengthen the alliance uh, in some ways because the alliance needed to get new weapons. It needed to modernize. It needs to spend more because it is facing new threats. And that is happening. United States needed to spend more. And in 2018, for example, American defense expenditures went up by $70 billion. That's roughly equivalent to the entire, the increase alone is equivalent to the entire Russian military budget for that year. And that cannot be good for the Kremlin. How much of uh, this discussion will be about China, specifically in regard to the Huawei 5G network? They need to have a discussion about China. Uh, it, it, is, it is essential. Uh, Russia is not a superpower. Russia is a remnant of a superpower. And it will not be a superpower. But China does have the potential to be a superpower. China has a vastly larger economy than that of Russia. It can challenge the West economically. It is trying to challenge the West uh, technologically. It has engaged in vast espionage and in manipulation. And uh, Huawei is one of the ways that they introduce 5G where they could get a hold of extremely sensitive uh, data in the West. There's good reason for the West to be extremely weary of, uh, of uh, Chinese uh, uh, theft of uh, uh, high technology uh, and uh, weary of introducing companies that can have access uh, to information. Uh, the Europeans have been more willing to take a risk than the United States and perhaps even Canada. I think they're making a mistake. And uh, it would be extremely beneficial for the alliance to discuss this because it is not just an economic issue. It is very much a security issue. Uh, we heard recent reports uh, prior to the weekend in regard uh, from Chinese-born BC politician Rich, uh, Richard Lee, who was a former liberal MLA there, traveled to China uh, to, I believe, go on a, a trip with his uh, 30th anniversary trip with his wife and ends up being detained in China. Are these discussions being had? Uh, it, it, it appears that there's lots that is being withheld from the public. This was a story that happened a couple of years ago and we're just figuring out about now. Uh, how concerned are other countries with China detaining its citizens, whether they're in business, politics, what have you? They're not concerned enough. They should be very concerned because uh, when uh, countries and governments don't speak up, the dictatorial regime in China, and it is, let's not forget, a communist regime that is doing terrible things to its people. We see what's happening in Hong Kong, but what we don't see often is what they've done to the Falun Gong, what they're doing to uh, the Muslim minority, the Uyghurs, there are like a million people in re-education camps. And so what we tended to do in the West was that we were willing to make the profits, but we were not willing to call them on uh, the human rights policies, which can rebound on us in unexpected ways. Uh, we know that there are a number of Canadians currently detained, and they're detained, uh, it would seem, for entirely false uh, uh, accusations. And it can happen to anyone at any time and if china wants to partake in the international economy if it wants to participate in international trade it has to have uh certain rules that it abides by it has to have uh, uh respect for the rights of, of foreigners who visit for companies it has to have dependable business law uh, and uh, it uh, cannot just have these politically determined detentions, which violates uh, 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 the, the right of uh, not just their own citizens, uh, but uh, they violate uh, uh, the rights of uh, anyone who visits to be vulnerable.
Uh, Canada at this point still officially has not made a decision on letting Huawei and the 5G network uh, in. Do you think this is because the two Michaels are still detained? Uh, I think that is an issue, and it is uh, extremely unfortunate uh, for the families of uh, these two uh, gentlemen. It is very unfortunate uh, for Canada uh, as a whole. But I think the Huawei issue is bigger than just the detention of these two individuals. We have to very carefully consider what our security needs are. We cannot afford to have mass theft of data. We cannot afford to have uh, a huge foreign entity like China be able to manipulate uh, our data, the privacy of our uh, of our citizens, and looking at uh, what Chinese companies uh, uh, have done before, uh, there is nothing reassuring about uh, Huawei at the moment. But there are many, many reasons to be extremely concerned. Uh, will obviously this will be a huge priority at these NATO meetings? Are we? Is it too late to put this uh, Huawei 5G genie back in the bottle? Are we already too interwound with them? I don't think it's it's too late. I think uh, we can untangle. Uh, uh, I think uh, there are good reasons uh, why we should uh, we should do so. How we do it. Uh, can we minimize the damage? Can we limit the friction? Can we get our two people out who essentially are hostages? Are important considerations. Uh, uh, I think uh, we have been, uh, in, in many ways, uh, uh, rather neglectful in how we dealt with China before by not signaling, signaling to China very clearly that good trade relations uh, do not mean that we look uh, the other way if our citizens are mm. are persecuted or uh, that uh, companies uh, from China uh, would be free to engage in uh, uh, technological espionage. That, that is not acceptable. So I think there's been a lot of the signaling. And the sooner we clarify what we want, I think the the better it is. And ultimately, ironically, it will also help China because they can't build a modern economy uh, by the way they have right. kind of uh, direction from the center through uh, illegal acquisition of uh, technology to mad systemic industrial espionage to their own form of uh, cyber warfare. Arl Braun, we're going to have to cut you up there. We're simply out of time. Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, and professor at the Monk School of Global Affairs. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, We certainly know where uh, our relationship, uh, well, maybe we don't. have an accurate view of where our relationship is uh, with China and, uh, of course, uh, the turmoil that's going on between the United States and China in regard to trade issues and such. And this all came to a head for Canada with the arrest a year ago of the Huawei CFO. This is the daughter of uh, the founder of Huawei. And uh, she has been uh, arrested and, of course, being held in Vancouver, uh, out on bail in her uh, one of her Vancouver mansions. Uh, this while the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver, uh, don't have any legal represent, representation whatsoever and uh, are living in conditions which uh, would not be allowed in this country. Uh, under our judiciary system. Uh, But something very odd has happened on the anniversary of uh, her detention. Uh, She has penned a letter thanking her supporters on the anniversary of the arrest in Vancouver. In an English-language post on the company's website Sunday, uh, the Huawei CFO said she has learned to, quote, face up and accept my situation. Uh, She's no longer afraid of the unknown, she says. Uh, The daughter of the smartphone company founder is currently out on bail waiting extradition to to America on charges related to violation of U.S. sanctions on Iran. She said uh, her heart has been warmed by support she has received since her her arrest, referencing gestures from Huawei colleagues and others. She also is deeply moved by the kindness of Canadians. 
thanks to the kindness, this is a quote, thanks to the kindness of the correctional officers and other inmates at the Alouette Correctional Center for Women, I was able to make it through the worst days of my life. When the judge announced that I was granted bail, the applause in the public gallery made me burst into tears. Um, but no mention of the two Michaels, Michael Spaver and Michael Kovrig, and the conditions that they're being held in. And I wonder if they're feeling the love that Canadians are showing the Huawei CFO. Let's bring in Gordon Holden, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta, and is with us now. Uh, Gordon, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. What are your thoughts on this letter? This seems bizarre to me. Well, probably it's maybe in part a cultural thing. It certainly does seem ham-fisted in terms of of public relations as someone who's before the Canadian courts, extradition court. Um, it's is a red-hot issue, white-hot issue, I suppose, in, in Canada right now, the contrast between her conditions and those of the two Michaels. I think, though, that she actually believed that this might be seen as helpful. The fact, as you note, it's done in English meant she's looking for a broader audience than just China. Within China, she's very, very favorably uh, viewed um, part, I think, because the Chinese are receiving only their state-controlled media. But it does seem very odd. I'm thinking she thinks by praising the treatment she's received from some prison officials and by some Canadians that this will lessen the uh, unhappiness of Canadians towards the situation in which she's in compared to the two Michaels. I, I, I can't be certain, but it's not good publicity. Culturally or not, I can't see it being that way because, uh, I, I, you know, I think most Canadians are thinking, how can you say that and keep a straight face and not mention anything about the two Michaels, who are obviously not being treated as well as this lady uh, is, and I'm sure are not writing letters praising the people that have detained them. Um, does this not, uh, in regard to a backlash, does this just not point to the fact that how bad the conditions are for those two Michaels? Well, I think whenever there is information available in the media about the comforts of her life, it does invite, correctly, uh, contrast with the cell conditions of the two Michaels almost a year on. So absolutely, I think it achieves the opposite results from that which she was presumably seeking. So who is she talking about? Who is sympathizing her for her? Who are the Canadians that are cheering her on the way she makes it sound? Well, it's possible, I suppose, in that holding cell that there are people there who are just pleased that she was let out in a way that they might cheer anybody being released. I'm not sure. As to in the broader society, there have been pockets of individuals around the courthouse at various times with signs supporting her. Not many, but some. Uh, she may be thinking of those, and heaven knows how many people might have sent flowers or whatever, um, somehow identifying with her cause. I don't, I'm pretty confident this is not typical of Vancouver sentiment or of Canadian sentiment, 100% certain of that. But in this big country, I don't doubt. And you can see sometimes even on the social media pages, there are individuals who disagree with her detention. I'm guessing it's those people she's referring to. Uh, this uh, this e even seems more odd, especially considering we've now heard from Richard Lee in Vancouver, the BCMLA, who uh, went to China, where he is from, and was there traveling with his wife for his 30th anniversary and was detained. So, I mean, how can she stand and, and say this in Vancouver when in B.C. he's telling his story a couple of days before how he was detained and wasn't sure, wasn't sure how it was all going to end? I'm not sure she was even aware of that, but it is a mm. fact, in my opinion, based on my own experience in government, whether that is that Canadians of Chinese ethnic origin are often at greater risk and the gloves tend to come off. So if you're a politician in Lee's case... A deputy speaker at the time, I believe, in the B.C. legislature uh, who travels to China, but you're perceived as having been critical of China. I'm guessing that's what was the rationale. Uh, you're more likely to face a hard time than other Canadians. And we often have had difficulties with Canadian citizens of Chinese origin, even though we have a consular agreement that says that they shall be treated equally as long as they travel on a Canadian passport. That's actually, in fact, not always the case. 
So it doesn't surprise me. I'm not sure she's aware of that. Uh, but certainly the contrast between the two judicial systems is pretty is pretty striking. It seems as if she's looking for support here, and it would appear she would, if she knows of the Mr. Lee situation, that people are going to believe the Huawei CFO over a resident of British Columbia who knows both sides of this story? Not likely. And again, when I look at the media coverage and talk with Canadians, uh, the sentiment is overwhelmingly concerned about the detention of the two Canadians. Uh, I'm not saying, I'm not one of those who say, put her in a hard time jail. No. Somehow the two wrongs will make it right. Uh, but I think our concern should be focused on our own citizens who are being held in very difficult circumstances. And again, I think that is the contrast between the two judicial systems. One, we're going through an uh, examination of a U.S. extradition request by our rules. Uh, the court judged that with an ankle bracelet and security that she wasn't a flight risk. Fine, let her out. Um, but none of that, of course, helps our two. And in fact, they're in slightly better conditions now than they were. They were held basically in solitary confinement for the better part of a year. Uh, but still, the conditions are difficult. One concert visit per month. There's just absolutely no comparison between the two systems in in terms of his treatment of people who are caught up inside. Uh, she's obviously a person who's extremely well-educated and has traveled all around the world. Is this not resonating on her, how great we are? There may have been a hint of that in some of her comments, where she talks about, you know, the beauty of Canada and and the scenery and the snow on the mountains, and maybe a little bit of appreciation creeping in uh, about what a wonderful country Canada is and, and, and its own city. But that's obviously, well, my opinion, That's more geographical not, than freedom, though. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> it's true. But exactly. But the fact that she can get on a blog, uh, on a company-sponsored blog, and, yeah. and send out a message worldwide, um, I mean, the Michaels have none of that. Uh, they are not even allowed any family visits. She has family members flying in from overseas. Again, completely different circumstances. And I think that the... It would be fascinating if a journalist yeah. could ask her that question and hear what her response mm. is. Uh, exactly. Now, that's not going to happen because, of course, no. they're carefully controlling access, they as in Huawei, to um, try and build their own case and to generate sympathy. But you're right. That would be a fascinating interview. If she were frank, it would be particularly fascinating. Uh, she goes on to say uh, on the company's website on Sunday, uh, she learned uh, she learned to, quote, face up to and accept my situation. Quote, I'm no longer afraid of the unknown. What does that mean? Other than she's well, happy she's detained in Canada, not China. Uh, but, did, but what does that mean? I, it's not crystal clear to me. I think one has to remember that this is um, uh, someone... I mean, I'm using this word carefully, but princess, in the sense that she has grown up with great wealth. Yes, she worked within the company, uh, but this is one of the most, this is a company that earns over $100 billion U.S. per year. Uh, it's a, a massive corporation. She's had uh, great power within the institution and a very privileged life. So perhaps even just a dent in that privilege, the inability to leave one city, um, may strike her or feel to her like hardship, uh, and she then reacts in that fashion. It's perhaps hard to generate sympathy for her, but I'm just guessing that reduction in that status is what's made her feel she's somehow grappling with mm. a difficulty in overcoming it. But I'm just guessing there. Uh, I agree with you that the, some of those lines are like clunkers, Again, given what's happening to our own. Is this letter and statement at this time, is this about her and her uh, extradition process, or is this about trying to get Canada to jump on board Huawei's 5G? Well, I wouldn't perhaps go so far about Canada and, and, Canada and the 5G decision. I have a gut feeling that for the chairman, for her father, Chairman Ren, that the getting his daughter out is way more important. Imagine... If you had a situation where, say, this isn't a perfect parallel, but imagine that Ivanka Trump was being held somewhere. Mm. Um, Trump's um, reaction would be way more intense than scheming about American sales and X or Y or Z kind of, uh, country. So to me, this is um, 
this is about her situation. Um, I find it hard to extrapolate it all the way into Canada adopting 5G. This is really her, Madame Meng, about Madame Meng's own situation, self-focused. My guess. Would China be coaching her, telling her what to do, what to say? Is this, or is because she's the Huawei uh, CFO and in the control of that company, uh, she's doing what she what she wants? Or is there a certain amount of this coming down through the Communist Party of China? My guess is given, what she says, how she reacts, that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, my guess is she may be getting some coaching from Huawei itself. Uh, be my guess in terms of either the Huawei people locally or through her father or others. I mean, again, to me, it wasn't this a good advice to do this. Um, I mean, there's things she could have said that wouldn't have gotten your reaction. Very simple, straightforward statements about she looked forward to being able to return to China at some point. Fair enough. Um, it's the tone and the words and the language. I doubt this is being her re- his reaction is being manuf- being nitpicked or set from high levels of the party, although they certainly are aware of it, and that's why China reacted so strongly. My guess is perhaps some coaching from Huawei itself, but I think it was um, Ill- ill-advised. Uh, Huawei, uh, the Huawei approach seems to be softer than the Chinese government's approach. Absolutely. I think they're... They, the, um, and this is a particular problem. Uh, Huawei itself, now we're under Huawei, not just Madame Meng, uh, they do want to have access to the Canadian market. Uh, they have captured a very large percentage of the uh, international 5G market, especially in developing countries, where it is actually the backbone of many, many, many national systems. The equipment works, it's cheap. There's all sorts of technical advantages to it, particularly on cost, um, compared to the other two variations. I think the West let down the side badly by not having our own um, North American system. Nortel came close and could have done that. Um, Nortel's no longer with us. I would love if there was a Canadian alternative that we could sell to the Americans. So I think, you know, yes, Huawei is looking at the Canadian market and, and other developed markets. These are the sort of prizes they'd like to win. And again, they've got strong arguments in terms of technical uh, advantages of the system and cost. But there, of course, are downsides, and that's what the federal government is wrestling with right now. So where is this extradition uh, uh, hearing at this point, uh, and any idea of a timeline when this will start to move? My own guesstimate, of course, there's a, there's a hearing in January and one scheduled for later in the year. I, I think just on the face of it, this is could last for years, uh, with certainly if the case, if the decision of the extradition court went against her, uh, she could, with Huawei lawyers' help, appeal this all the way to the Supreme Court. And I know from experience on other cases involving a Chinese national who wanted the opposite case. He didn't want to be extradited to the United States. It took us 11 years to send that criminal back. Uh, that This could take a very long time. In the interim, of course, the court could could agree with her and release her at any given time. The Americans could, could uh, decide to drop the suit. President Trump's already hinted it might be a bargaining chip. I would say, and here's a guess, I'd say about a 50% chance this gets solved in one way or the other over the next year, and about a 50% chance it takes much longer. I was, that was sort of my next question. How much do you think the next U.S. election will, will play into all of this? Very hard to tell. And what I wish I could know is whether these very drawn-out discussions between the, the Trump administration and the Chinese on a trade pact. And all of a sudden will come to a head right in time for the election. Yeah. yeah. And would, exactly, would have the Chinese put this forward as a demand? Almost certainly, I'd say, have the Americans or President Trump thought hard about it. So that is one of the exit points. The U.S. drops the suit. If they drop the extradition request, game over, it's done. There's nothing to hold her on, she's out. Uh, but that's, I say, that's in my. There's another variation where the Minister of Justice in Canada can uh, drop the case. So that's in my, those two figure into my 50% chance for next year. Uh, but it's, again, 50%. It could take much, much longer years. Gordon Holden has been with us, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta. It has been a year since the CFO of Huawei was arrested in B.C. and detained on an extradition warrant. Gordon, thanks so much for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant. Alyssa PR, lots to talk about today, including the Premier's All Meeting. Uh, Prince Andrew, ooh, another interview tonight. Um, I'm not sure how this is going to go. And uh, the Huawei CFO pens a letter on her one-year anniversary of being detained in Vancouver, thanking everybody for how well she's been treated, living in her one of her million-dollar mansions. You'd think when you'd say things like that, uh, and again, maybe the country that she comes from, you know, allowed free thought, but you'd think that would make you would think she would think that would make others think well i'm glad you're enjoying your bail what about the two michaels find it fascinating anyway let's bring in Alyssa freeman she is with us now Alyssa, thanks for the time much appreciated as always scott uh canada's premier's meeting today this all under uh, doug ford he's providing this kumbaya moment why do you think this is happening now well, you know, this is a bit of a reset for Doug Ford and probably many of the premiers right now post-federal election. And, you know, as we, as we know, Doug Ford was very, very, or kept very, very quiet during the federal election, even though his name was invoked more times than we could count by Justin Trudeau. Yeah. Now, instead of coming out with guns a-blazing after being, you know, held hostage and you know, the inability to speak to the press, really, um, Doug has, st- uh, has struck a much different tone, that of more of a statesmanlike or quiet and gentler tone. And I think that this is a great, uh, this is a great um, strategic opportunity for him to uh, turn the channel. And we know that his ratings are quite low. And nobody's done a, a, um, a survey yet uh, lately, but his ratings are really not that great prior to the federal election. I think we can all harken back to the Raptor parade when he was announced and he was lustily booed. And I think if there's one thing that none of the Fords have ever liked is that they're not liked and that, that there's been a bit of a thin skin that's inherent in their personalities. So instead of going along the same track as a uh, big bad premier who's going to do what he thinks needs done, uh, th- there's been a bit of a reset. And I think that has to do with the new uh, chief of staff. Uh, I believe that Jamie Wallace is in there. And that, that position is really, really important, not just for dealing with everybody, uh, you know, the ministers and the bureaucrats, but also, most importantly, is setting the tone for the premier. Will it work for Doug Ford? If he can keep it up, and if the narrative can keep up, you know, we're only human. We can only play a part for so long. Yeah. I, you know, for his sake, I hope that he can keep it up. But there's undoubtedly going to be something, you know, you can turn things turn a dime in, in, the, in the life of anybody who works politics. Everything can be fine one day, and the next day it all falls apart. So I think it depends on how closely he continues to work with his team, um, that they work together, and that they really, you know, think through things uh, as opposed to just uh, shooting from the hip. What needs to come out of this meeting? What needs to be the public message when it's all over? Yeah, there needs to be some sort of solidarity that comes out of this meeting. I think a lot of people are looking at what the uh, the thoughts on climate are going to be. And climate, you know, we've had a little bit of an inkling that everybody's saying, okay, well, the premiers are saying, well, instead of this, you know, let, let's do uh, nuclear energy instead. And I'm thinking, well, is that a good idea? Also, I don't know. I, I think that everybody is going to be looking at what sort of solid solidarity messages are coming out of this as a way of moving forward and as a way of dealing with the federal government. How is the Prime Minister's office viewing these meetings? Closely. <laughs> I, think that yeah. I think that what they're looking at is who's a friend, who's a foe, who could be trusted and who can't. Everybody's going to have a stake in the ground. The West has certainly put a stake in the ground, both from Jason Kenney and Scott Moe. You absolutely know where they stand, and I believe that they'll be looking to see where everybody else stands too. Uh, obviously, uh, the uh, world leaders heading into a NATO summit in London tomorrow and the next day. Uh, the prime minister has been pretty quiet of late, not the usual uh, Justin Trudeau we are used to. Is the second version of the prime minister different than the first? Absolutely. We all know that a lot of Justin Trudeau's gaffes happened overseas. You know, in the, in the first year after he was voted in, Trudeau had a, a honeymoon period where everybody was in love with him. And if his numbers went up after about, he, his numbers actually went up after he was elected. Exactly. And 
We know that when there was trouble at home, the one way to diffuse that was to go abroad and to have a very sort of lavish and, and congratulatory article about, you know, this is a, the type of uh, leader that we would want for, you know, fill in the blank of our country. However, post that, his performance um, internationally it did not go so well. We all remember the uh, ill-fated uh, trip to India with the uh, costume changes every hour on the hour. I think that Trudeau was going to start also taking a more quiet and statesmanlike role, not being uh, the center of attention, but not necessarily fading into the background either. But I don't think that we're going to see the celebrity statesman that we've been used to seeing for the past four years. All right. I want to run this by you, and I'm not sure how much you've seen on this, but uh, this is the year anniversary of the Huawei CFO being detained in Vancouver on the U.S. extradition warrant. Uh, she has published a letter. Uh, Huawei has published a letter on their web, on their website on the anniversary of uh, her uh, her, her arrest, uh, thanking supporters uh, in Vancouver. In an English language post on the company's website on Sunday, uh, the Huawei said she has learned to quote face up and accept my situation. I am no longer afraid of the unknown. Uh, obviously, this is the daughter of the smartphone company founder uh, arrested on those U.S. extradition charges. She said her heart has been warmed by the support she has received since her arrest, re- uh, referencing gestures from Huawei colleagues and also deeply moved by the kindness of Canadian Canadians thanking uh, thanks to this is a quote thanks to the kindness of the correctional officers and other inmates at the Alouette Correctional Center for Women I was able to make it through the worst days of my life when the judge announced that I was granted bail the applause in the public gallery made me burst into tears uh, how can they publish this or say this with a straight face does this not immediately open up comparisons to the two Michaels who are, are detained and certainly uh, not in conditions similar to what the Huawei CFO is, that being in her own mansion. Uh, how, does, how does she keep a straight face with this? Well, I honestly believe that she, she, she absolutely believes this. And the difference between her house arrest and the rest of the two Michaels, who I'm sure certainly are not, sitting in a $13 million mansion, painting, uh, doing oil paintings and reading books, to pass the time away. Certainly not thanking uh, their detainers. Well, and you also have to remember, too, Scott, that this was a memo that was directed to Huawei employees. So this wasn't something necessarily put on a public chat site. However, anything that you put out there is eventually in the, in the public realm if it's provocative enough. And that's the case with this particular letter. So based on that, we see her... That the tone of this note is obviously very different than I think if it was supposed to be a very external facing note. How, but, but people know, I mean, especially, you know, she would know that this type of note to employees would eventually filter its way out into the public realm. And the, the, there's a stark contrast into her house arrest and that with the two Michaels in China. And I, I certainly don't think that this does her any favors. So while she's, you know, whiling away with her oil paintings and the other two are sitting mm. in the conditions of uh, alleged, you know, who knows what, where they are actually, nobody knows. Um, a squalor, and apparently they were at first interrogated for days on end with the lights on so that they would never know what time of day it was. The comparison of the two conditions are dramatically different. I don't think there is much sympathy, um, you know, for her, you know, Meng Wajou in, in here in Canada. And I think this only serves to underscore the, the differences in what it means <clears throat> to be arrested. She paints a picture here that people are sympathetic towards her. And I'm thinking, are more people sympathetic towards her than the detained two Michaels? I mean, no, it's, a, I it's amazing they can speaking, try to sell that. I think that she's speaking strictly towards Huawei executives and that perhaps they have felt sympathetic to her. I, I don't think that this is meant to say that generally Canadians are sympathetic to her. I think that we have to be very, very careful in how we talk about the audience to whom this note was directed. Uh, it doesn't really make that very clear. In, in, in the Global Mail, doesn't really make it that clear. In the CBC, if you look at the same story there, it makes it a little bit more clearer as to the audience that this note was directed to. Uh, 
Is there uh, anything, wouldn't she be best just to say stay silent at this point? Unless she's showing yeah, concern yeah, I mean, for the Canadian has. detainees. You know, she has stayed silent. And again, I'm not sure what the the modus operandi of her was to think that she could put out a note like this and not have it gain international attention. I think that there is some thought that has to go into that. I can't believe she would just write something like this and expect it to stay stay within the confines. Especially uh, considering late last week, uh, Richard Lee, an MLA in British Columbia, very well-known, respected politician there, traveled to China, where he is from, with his wife for his 30th, 30th anniversary, and was detained and came back and sent, you know, a warning out to people in regard to this. So here we are talking the same part of the world, and it just it just seems bizarre. Anyway, I want to move on to uh, the Prince Andrew situation. We all know uh, what happened with his uh, uh, BBC interview way back when. Now there's another, or the first interview rather, now there is a second interview. This is going to air tonight, and this is with the victim, I understand. Uh, How do you get out in front of something like this when you don't really know what's going to come? I, I do believe that the palace knows what is going to come. You know, there is a clip that is making its way around from the British show, I believe it's Panorama, that uh, various news outlets are using to tantalize or to promote the story that is to come. This is, you know, here we are where the BBC is doubling down even more against Prince Andrew. And what was interesting when I was doing my research on this before I talked to you was that the first interviewer um, that Prince Andrew interviewed with felt that you know the Queen had actually signed off on this. So this wasn't just something that Prince Andrew went you know blindly ahead and discounting everything that all experts had had said about you know had advised against him doing this. So here we have a very very credible witness. She was there. I watched her clip. She does present beautifully. She presents very believably, and she presents as though she she recounts her situation in uh, back then with Prince Andrew in great detail, but in a way that she talks about it that is very believable. This is honestly going to put a nail in the coffin of um, Prince Andrew. And I think that the palace has to be, they've already asked him to step away from his duties. That's the first thing. There's already been rumblings that Prince Charles is now having more of an influence on his mother and that they're calling really Prince Charles the king-in-waiting and that it was he in the first place who told his mother to banished, that Prince Andrew had to be banished from the royal family at this point. And the other thing that may fall out of this is that, as we know, there is a something called the list, which is the royal list of family members that are continually supported by the public purse. I believe that this is going to be revisited and it's going to be made a lot shorter because the underlying notion of this is you live in Britain and you pay taxes, part of your taxes go to support the royal family. And for the average person working very, very hard, when they think about where their money is going and what they're supporting, it makes them angry. So I think that as uh, a first juncture, there has to be some sort of uh, show of maybe even more discipline, but also what are they going to do about everybody else who's being supported by the royal purse? So as you said, nail in the coffin. So at that point, he's gone. He's done. He, you know, I'm guessing he'll be, that'll be it for his public life. He's already losing support from other sponsors and such that were, were involved in some of the causes that he was involved in. So it certainly looks like he's gone for all intensive purposes. But do, do those in the UK have to see that he is, quote, off the lamb, off the official uh, payroll in order for this to go away? I think so, because right now what's happened is that there's, this is just a sort of a first cut, if we can call it that. So the banishing, the duties, the, that was the first cut. But as more and more details come out, it will really depend. The severity of that information will have to be dealt with appropriately. And we're not sure, we as the public are not sure what information is going to be imparted by this woman tonight. But I guarantee you, it's not going to be laudatory. 
And I'm sure that the palace is now gathered around. They're all going to be around the TV, and there will have to be a statement, a very, very carefully worded statement, that essentially they're going to need to support this woman and to be seen as supporting. Wow, that's another issue, too, is like, does she have to pay them as well? Do they have to pay her off? Yeah, so how could they support Prince Andrew, even though he is the Queen's son, who uh, is allegedly a pedophile in this case? That's just a no-win situation. And as hard as it is to do that to your own brethren, really, it's just more than somebody's brother. It's somebody's brother that carries a title, is supported by taxpayer money, and was affiliated with a number of companies and trusts um, in the name of the British royal family. So this sort of takes that really to the highest degree. We all remember the term Randy Andy. Is anybody surprised here that some of this stuff has finally come back to bite him? You know, it's all what's in the name, right, Scott? You know, people called him Randy Andy, and we all thought it was cute. He had sort of a rakish look, and he was at, I think it was, what was it, Lakefield. And They've disowned him as well now, too, it looks like. Well, absolutely. It, it's pretty hard to be an all-boys school and to continue to have him as a patron, I would yeah. think. It, it, things in jest about you, but there's always a little bit of truth. All right, Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant, Alyssa PR. Alyssa, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. As always, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. 911.